Howard, I was trying to figure out if we had met before and the context under which we may have met is before I joined Kane Anderson and that was March of 2001. I was an investment banker for Stevens Inc., the Little Rock, Arkansas Investment Bank. Sure. Yeah. I kinda, well, I kind of had the joke. I wanted I was in the Houston office. I wanted to do well, but not well enough to get promoted to Little Rock. That was kind of the dance I did. But um, I used to bill myself as the investment banker for Traverse City, Michigan, because I took Miller Exploration Public that was headquartered there. Uh, I worked on their joint venture with Key Production, which became Simerex, which is now whatever pharmaceutical drug sounding name. Um, I also did a, a deal for KEP, uh, which had a reef play up in Michigan. So I used to bill myself as the banker for Traverse uh -huh. City. And didn't you do a deal well, way back in the day with the Traverse yeah, City, Michigan? Way back in the day, we did a deal. When I started Cadence in 2001, um, we, had a, we had a very, very interesting uh, geo out of Houston, Texas by the name of Lucius Gear. And Lucius was a 72-year-old ex-Union Unical senior geologist who was a crusty old Texan, but a, but a darn good oil man, uh, Chuck. In fact, I named my, our new company that I'm going to talk a little bit about today, LGX Energy. We named I named it in Lucius's honor. He was such a such a fun guy. So LGX stands for Lucius Gear Exploration. <laughs> Lucius passed away a number of years ago, but uh, we all miss him. He was a real character. Anyway. Um, so we built that company up with production in, in North Texas, up in Wilbarger County. It was called Cadence Resources. And then we had a real interesting gas play over in DeSoto Parish, Louisiana, that we partnered with the big, uh, the big international energy company out of Argentina, Breedis Energy. We built that company what, up. And then, hey, Howard, let me cut you off. What formation of gas were you going for over in Louisiana? Hoston, Hoston Cotton Valley Gas. Oh, so, my gosh. Uh, yeah. we, had, we had Hoston Cotton Valley Gas north of, or in Shre near Shreveport in DeSoto Parish. And, um, and then we did an acquisition of a, of, a, of a company up out of Traverse City, Michigan, called Aurora Oil and Gas in 2006. And the management of that company kind of took over as part of the deal. Um, that we brought in along with some financing. And then they kind of ran the show from there. And I, I like your question, Chuck, because one of the things that happened in the aftermath of that, I had stepped down from the board in February of 2006, I think. And um, over in our Louisiana play, we had full column rights to the uh, to the acreage that we held. And it was a pretty large acreage package. I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was pretty good size. And we had full column rights. And it turns out that we had Haynesville rights, which we probably could have sold for an awful lot of money. And those guys sold out our interest in the play for like 4 million bucks, which was four times cash flow oh. on, on the existing wells, giving no value to the PUDs that we had. And there were lots of them and giving no value to the Haynesville rights that we had. So anyway, 
water over the dam. But uh, my my story on that, my, those were interesting times. My story on that is we had invested in a company called Caddo Resources, named after Caddo Parish. We'd gone in to do Cotton Valley stuff, and we just stunk it up. I mean, we drilled the crappiest eight wells probably in that whole parish. And we were staring at the first loss in Kane Anderson history in the private equity energy funds. My head was on the chopping block. So anyway, we struggled and ultimately Goodrich wound up buying us and bought us for stock. And that was right at the beginning of the Haynesville. So there was some Haynesville value. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you remember just how rapid the extension was of the values in the Haynesville. Oh, I, I, I kind of do. I, you know, I had, I had le I'd left the company at that point and I thought, I thought, you know, and these guys almost immediately decided to sell the, uh, our interest in the producing wells and the acreage in, in DeSoto Parish to get 4 million cash on hand. Or something else they wanted to do up in the Antrim in Michigan, <laughs> and and they they let the whole thing go. It was uh, anyway, uh, but um, hold on, last, it, was, last it thing, was interesting times over there. Yeah, last thing I'll, I'll just close out on the story. So we sold for Goodrich stock. We got some Haynesville acreage value in there, so we had gotten two thirds of our money back, and we were all going to church that Sunday to make big donations and say thank you because we'd been bailed out. We were immediately going to turn around and sell the stock that Monday in a bought deal. And a lawyer went out of town unexpectedly on Friday and hadn't filled out all the paperwork we needed. We were so pissed. We were livid. We were flaming the guy, all this. Well, in the next week and a half till he got back, the Goodrich stock price actually doubled as the Haynesville ascension went on. And we wound up making yeah. 1.2 times our money because the lawyer went out of town. So anyway, we uh, we sold the stock 1.2 times our money, yeah. called it a shrewd investment and moved on. So, uh, yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that, that that thing, it really did. It really did hit hard when it hit. So, um, yeah, there's all kinds of stories like that. You know, I had a deal with a with a friend of mine out of uh, had a private company out of Midland. This is in the earlier days of Cadence, and I had made a deal to buy um, to buy a uh, uh, thirty-five percent stake in his Lee County, New Mexico field, historic field that he had over there for seven and a half million dollars. This was in, I think, about two thousand and three or so, two thousand and four. And we, I, I had gone down to Midland. Our banker in New York had agreed uh, the funding; he had it in place. And I had gone down to Midland to close on it. And um, uh, I get a call from the lawyer. He had hired, or from uh, our, my banker in New York, he had hired this, this lawyer in New York who had no experience in oil and gas. And the guy was reviewing these leases in Lee County. And he said, you know, I'm not comfortable with the title on all these leases that are out there. I mean, some of these things have, have been divided and subdivided numerous times over the years. Well, look, the fact is that the group I was buying into, they'd been paying the royalties to the residual landowners like a slot machine for 10 or 12 years. There'd been never any complaints. You know how these titles are on old oil and gas leases that have been handed down through families. Well, anyway, long story short, this lawyer said, no, I don't think we should close this. Uh, so I went to Steve, my friend, and I said, look, our lawyer's trying to block the closing on this. I'm sorry. And he said, oh, 
He said, thank you, Howard. He said, I would have honored the deal because we shook hands on it and whatever. But at this price, I really didn't want to sell it anyway. Well, bottom line, one year later, he sold his Lee County play for $125 million. So I think 35% <laughs> of that is more than seven and a half. Just a little bit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. No, that's uh, that's crazy. That I'm, you know, one of the things I. But you mentioned reef plays up in Michigan. I mean, I got my feet wet in the business as a young investor buying into uh, Northern Niagara reefs. Oh wow! Yeah. In the in the in the Northern Niagara reef trend, and there was this geologist that had uh, had had a hot streak of hitting these things. He'd hit like five or six of these, and these Northern Niagara reefs, you know, one well could be a couple of million barrels, no problem, right? And what was the premise? So he was on a hot streak. And he, what was the premise behind those? As I recall, it was, you know, advent of 3D seismic. We could finally image yes. them. So we knew where the reef yeah. was and you hit it. And it was either a howitzer full of hydrocarbons or it was wet. Was that kind of the play, as I recall? Or or the or the porosity wasn't there. Or the porosity either. wasn't there. You know, okay. It was, it was tight. Yeah. This is before fracking was big. It's, we're talking the 80s. Right. So he had a two-well package, and he had this one well. I'll never forget it. It was called the Maidens. He said, the seismic on this is the best I've ever seen. This is going to be a monster well. But he had another prospect that was part of the same acreage package that he had to agree to drill that one at the same time. And the seismic on that one was iffy as hell. It was called the Stolen 1-18, right? Yep. So... It was a package deal. 10,000 bucks got you a 1% interest in both wells. 2,500 for your interest in the maidens and 7,500 for your 1%, uh, 7,500 for the maidens and 2,500 for your 1% in the stolen. So I'm going to bet, Chuck, that you can write the rest of the script. <laughs> but I want to hear it. <laughs> well, the maidens well was a dry hole. The stolen well paid me back my $2,500 for my 1% interest. For the first few months, it was paying me back every week. Nice. And over the course of that well, over a 20-year period, I got over $110,000 in cash payouts for my $2,500 investment. Nice. You know, I think that's kind of lost on what I'll call the younger generation. I hate to sound like an old boomer, but I think that's lost on folks just the excitement we had when we first had 3D seismic. You could, for the first time, truly well, image these no. structures and just the, the lottery ticket nature of it was so much fun. Well, and that's, and that's really where we are um, in what I'm doing now with LGX Energy in Indiana. And I'm happy to tell you all about that because we're super excited. But you know, there's always, you, you want to try to find a way in this business to get some kind of an advantage, right? Whether it's seismic or whether it's the acreage you hold or some kind of new technology for completion techniques or whatever it is, you want to find some kind of an advantage. So back in the cadence days, I told you about Lucius Gear, right? Well, he was he was a real good oil man and we had some really good leases up in Wilbarger County on the Wagner Ranch, which is, I think, after the King Ranch, I think it's the second largest ranch in Texas. They had their own oil and gas division with their own geologists and everything. And we were leasing, we were getting leases on them. You know, leases where we had to drill right away. I mean, there was no, you know, no time on them, but we, Lucius liked some of these prospects. And so we'd get a, we'd get a, a 40 acre lease and drill a well. And we were having a lot of success. Well, 
Lucius says to me one day, he says, you know what? We ought to hire my old friend, Al Wadsworth. You know, he's retired down in Houston now, but I think he could help us. And I go, well, sure, Lucius, what's the story? Well, Al, you know, he's 88 years old and he lives right there in Houston. He's not far from the log library. And, uh, you know, a lot of them wells that were drilled up there in Wilbarger County where we're at, oh, they were drilled way back in the 19-teens and 20s and they had different technology for logging them wells. And a, a lot of modern geologists, they can't read them. But old Al, he can read them old logs. So we hire Al and uh, we pay him, you know, three days a week on a consulting rate. And he'd go down to the log library in Houston and he'd pull these logs off the Wagner Ranch. And he'd call me up and he'd say, Howard, he said, I got, well, I got, there's a well here. They drilled this well in 1919 and they logged 16 feet of really good looking pay in the upper Milham sand at 1,652 feet. And they never completed it. And I said, well, why is that, Al? Well, they didn't want they didn't want no well doing a hundred barrels a day back then. They were looking for two thousand barrels or nothing. They weren't even going to waste the time completing a, a well like that. So we'd go twin that well. You know, it had long since been plugged and abandoned, but we knew right where it was. We had the coordinates. We'd go twin that well, and we'd make a sixty or seventy barrel a day well every time. And we did that over and over and over again. You know, some of them came in at 100 barrels a day and some of them came in at 20 barrels a day, but they were all shallow, cheap, and they all paid out fast. It's, it's stunning. So that was our advantage there. It's stunning the amount of what I'll just put in quotes and call institutional knowledge that our industry has lost through the ages. Because if you think about it, so much data was stored on paper that's been destroyed or in people's heads who have just flat out, I hate to be blunt about it, but they've died. And uh, right. Well, guys like Lucius and Al, yeah. you know, they were they were at the very end when we had them, and they were they were the reason we were successful, frankly, because I was, you know, I, that was my first time in the commander's chair at an oil and gas deal. Um, I'd been an investor and and a financier of some projects before that. But well, the, yeah, the single that worst, was, that was great. The single worst tool on the planet for years in our business were those old mud logs. Cause you'd get a show and everybody'd get excited and you'd go complete that zone and it'd never have anything in it. And you got to the point where you just started throwing away all those old log libraries. Lo and behold, the shale revolution happens. And those were the compass that pointed you to all the shales out there. And, and those were the best yeah. tools ever to sit there in the in the shell revolution. It's just crazy how institutionally we've we've lost so much through the years and and haven't gotten it captured. I do want to hear about what you're doing right now because I know nothing about Indiana and Illinois. I've looked at three or four well, deals. Let me, yeah, there, let me give you let me give you the background on that. Yeah, so LGX Energy. A company, we started it in November. My partner and I that I've worked with for 30 years, we started the company in November of 2021 uh, and with the thesis that uh, there was a portion here of the Illinois Basin that was underexplored for sure using any kind of modern technology. And that would be several counties in southwestern Indiana. And the reason we focused in on that is we were able to negotiate an acquisition of a company called Adler Energy that was owned by some German investors. And they had uh, they had drilled out a small field called the Thomas Field back in about 2006. 
and it, there were six or seven producing wells, and they had uh, they had declined down from their initial flush production to where collectively they were doing about 20 barrels a day. And so we bought the whole company, and that included that that field, which was doing about 19, 20 barrels a day, and still is. It's, you know, the, these wells have 40 year life on them. And what in the what basin. formation is that, and about how deep is that? Well, that was that those were those were Mississippi, not not Mississippi. Sorry, those were Devonian age reefs. Okay, small reefs, shallow reefs at about 1,800 feet. Okay. And so they they probably put seven straws into that drink that with seismic you would have done it with two or three at the most, but um, but those are still producing about twenty barrels a day for us. We bought the whole company for two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. It closed on January thirty first, twenty twenty two. But the real key there for us is back in the first part of the new century, Adler had spent about. Well, they had shot over 400 miles of 2D seismic across four counties. And, and then the, 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 the crash of 08 hit and the oil price took a hit, and they, they really never even processed most of that seismic. So we got all of that seismic, and we set to work uh, in 2022 processing seismic like crazy. And we have had, uh, well, and, and based on that, we've gone out and started leasing, and of course, one of the challenges in southwestern Indiana, we're operating in Clay County and Greene County and Davies County and uh, Vigo County. One of the challenges there is that, you know, all that property was settled back in the 19th century under the Homestead Act. So, you know, farmers got a 160-acre parcel deeded to them, and then they had children and grandchildren, and they got it divided up or sold off. And so, there's no federal land there. There's no large tracts of land available for leasing. And so you really have to be kind of specific and you have to know how to talk to Indiana farmers, which we do. So we've been able to get really good three-year paid up leases with two-year options. And, and when you hear the numbers that we're paying, probably should be a little careful because <laughs> other people, but other people don't know what we know, but we're getting leases. We're getting three-year paid up leases for between 10 and $25 an acre. Oh my gosh, that that uh, I, I kind of want to sit and here. And we're paying, and we're paying a one eighth royalty. I almost want to go uh, license the song "Glory Days" from Bruce Springsteen to start playing in the back because yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's really pretty amazing. So in the first year of processing about twenty five percent of that seismic, we've already got fifty five prospects that we've either leased or intend to lease because we can see. Mississippian targets there, we can see Devonian reefs that have formed, and we can see deeper horizons that have been massively productive in other parts of the Illinois Basin, including the Trenton, the Black River Sand, the St. Peter Sand, and even all the way to the Knox. And the deepest any of these formations are in this part of Indiana is about 3,800 feet to 3,900 feet. So we're gonna be, the first five, well, okay, so we start with that premise. And then we've come back and shot 3D seismic to confirm what we're seeing on the 2D that we've processed. And, and we've, we've identified five prospects that we already have permits on that we're getting ready to start drilling as this funding comes in from our Reg A. So we've got five prospects that we've reconfirmed on 3D. And just to give you some scale for what the Illinois Basin is all about, I mean, the Illinois Basin covers two-thirds of the state of Illinois, the South western third of the state of Indiana, the western half of the state of Kentucky. 
And, and it's been like the fifth most productive basin in U.S. history. Um, John D. Rockefeller discovered a field in east central Indiana, a Trenton field, which is not technically part of the Illinois Basin, but same formation. He discovered a Trenton field there in 1890, which became the first 100 million barrel field in U.S. history, called the Lima-Peru field in Allen County, Indiana. And that was the basis of his multi-billion dollar fortune was that field. That's what got him started in the oil business. And it produced over 100 million barrels over a 20-year period. And again, because of the primitive, tech, primitive technology that was used back in the 1890s and early 1900s, it's been estimated by the Geological Survey that there's 150 million barrels of stranded oil there that we can't get because he depressurized the formation by drilling it incorrectly. So it was a massive 250 million barrel field that Rockefeller discovered. Now there's, there's Trenton Fields in southern Michigan that, uh, that are again at about, at about the 2,800 foot level, which is where we're seeing the Trenton in, in our area of southwestern Indiana. The Albion Scipio Field has produced almost 200 million barrels and the Stony Point Field of almost 40 million barrels. Now, uh, our senior geophysicist, Jerry Blackston, he actually worked on the Stony Point field. He knows exactly what the seismic on that field looked like. And we've got five prospects right now, Trenton prospects, with mirror image seismic to Stony Point. And yet, in those four counties, almost all of the production that's happened over the last hundred years has been very shallow Mississippian or a little bit of Devonian production, all above 2,000 feet. So how how isolated are these reefs? Are they individually defined prospects or do the reefs somewhat run together? And where I was going with this is- Sometimes the they grow in clusters, like uh, in, in one part of Clay County, we've, we've leased one reef that looks like it has extremely good closure and is about about 160 acres in size. And there's a, there's another one right next to it underneath a town that's about the same size, which we've we've got leases going on that as well. So they do, they do tend to grow in clusters. These reefs in that part of Indiana, these, uh, these Devonian age reefs are about 1,800 feet deep, something like that. And then typically these first five that we have seismic on, we've got stacked pay underneath it. So when we drill, we're going to be going to the basement to look at the knocks. And we'll take a look at one of the, one of the other sands like the St. Peter or the Black River, and we'll take a look at the Trenton. So I can't, even, see, I can't even remember uh, having a investor presentation that was geologically driven since that's been you know, 20, <laughs> 20 years since the last time. I notice you're not wearing a tie. I could always tell the geologist was screwing me if they had a tie on. Well, I'm not. I'm not a geologist, I but I've I've been around them for I, forty years, I, and I, I've I've seen a lot of squiggly lines, and and I've got a really great my team my team of people, which includes geologists, geophysicists, landmen, and project managers. We've got 150 years of collective experience in the Illinois Basin, so. I've really got a, I've got a gray hair, a lot of gray hair in the cockpit, if you will. And I got some excited, some excited young guys out there too, but so, you know, just to give you some more scale. Let me jump in. Let me jump in. If I can remember a couple of my geologic questions from 20 some odd years ago, 
Anything with sure. the AVO analysis that's going to help us differentiate between water and hydrocarbons? Did that sentence even make sense? I think I would have asked that well, 20 it, years it, ago. It, it does, but I, I think the, the answer is, you know, like these first couple wells that we drill, we already know that these areas are hydrocarbon charged. For instance, the first well we're going to drill, another company just dr they drilled into the gas cap and they never got below the gas cap because they didn't have any seismic. But we already know there's it's oil and gas charged. Oh, there you go. This whole region, be yeah, this whole region, because there's shallower formations that have produced for decades. Um, just to give you some scale, down in one of the counties that we're in, our seismic there's a there's a Salem field, which has produced historically five million barrels of, of oil from a Salem field at above a thousand feet. It's a 900 foot deep formation. We've got seismic just a couple of miles north of that field that looks exactly like it. And what's it gonna cost us to test a field at 900 feet? Not very much. Yeah, that's me with my seven iron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there, there's so much, our team has so much excitement over this so what's it even like well, okay. trying to get well, a rig? What's it like trying to get a rig? In oh the well, there's we've got we've got rigs lined up. It's, okay, you know that's the other thing about the Illinois Basin is it's it's been it's been producing for 120 years. So you've got there's there's drilling companies, there's workover rigs, there's field hands, there's geologists, there's two refineries in the Illinois Basin. We're currently selling to the Country Mark Refinery the production that we've got, and we've got a you know it's it's all light sweet crude we don't get any penalties for heavy sulfur anything like that so any anything um, anything going on uh in the area in the oil field that would shock somebody from from the permian basin maybe any different things you have to do in the illinois basin versus you know what i'll call a more traditional well you don't have to drill as deep we don't have to drill <laughs> as deep a hole to get to all the formations we're after we don't have to pay near as much for the leases we don't have to pay near as much royalty, um, and we don't have to deal with the federal government at all because it's all state of Indiana, Illinois, or state of Indiana Oil and Gas Division, and we've been able to get drilling permits in a week. Wow! Yeah, much more. So, um, I mean, you know, to me, it, it just as a as an industry investor, my whole life, I mean, it ticks all the boxes for a project, and so. What we're doing, we've got a Reg A on the streets, Chuck, that um, people can read about it at our website, and, and I'm, I'm doing webinars on it. You know, back to what we, you and I were talking about earlier about the oil business. One of the questions I've got is, you know, what's the risk profile of, of oil and gas drilling? And I said, well, the risk is, if you're drilling one well, the risk is extremely high, you know. Uh, even if you've got good geology and good seismic and everything else, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong with one well. I mean, you can you can hit oil and it can be no porosity, or or you can hit oil and have uh, screw up the completion and stick rods in the hole. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong, or it can be a dry hole. And uh, the way you beat that is with diversification. So you know, over the next couple of years, we're going to be drilling dozens and dozens of wells with excellent science on all of them in an area that's already proven to be highly productive for hydrocarbons, mainly oil. Um, I, I started to say, just across the line in Illinois, there's been Trenton Wells. Remember, go back to Rockefeller and what he did in eastern Indiana. 
There's been Trenton wells over on the Illinois side of the line. One well that is IP'd at 4,000 barrels a day with over a million barrels of cumulative uh, total production resource, you know, total recoverable oil. So these Trenton wells can be huge. You know, one, one Trenton well can, can make a company, frankly. Yeah, that'll be interesting to that'll be interesting to watch. Like I said, I think in my career, we wound up um, we wound up looking at three or four deals in the that neck of the woods. Was there a New Albany shale that was somewhere? Yeah, there? oh yeah, there's there's really good New Albany shale down in uh, in Posey County, and 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 uh, and a lot of the infrastructure for the New Albany shale is in place now. Gas prices haven't been very interesting lately, obviously compared to oil, but. Um, but Posey County isn't very far away from us, and there we know of some very outstanding Albany shale prospects down in Posey County. But that hasn't been our focus right now. Interesting, interesting. But yeah, New Albany shale is is a real thing. Gotcha. All right, give me kind of one or two sort of wild uh, oil stories from back in the day. Oh, oh boy. Well, there's so many, you know. Um, so many, I mean, I told you the one about the stolen well, you know, the only reason it even got drilled is the landowner was requiring that you have to drill the stolen prospect if, or I won't give you the maiden's prospect. Isn't that just the best, and, you know, the, the well that kicked off the, the Permian basin, the Santa Rita number one, um, the guy had to import in via train, the drilling rig. Right. And so does that moving the drilling rig it breaks down he doesn't have enough money to fix it so the drilling rig's right there he drills the well boom the santa rita number one hits and lo and behold we've got the permian basin and it kicks off uh all that five years later he went back and drilled his original prospect that he brought the rig in for and it was a dry hole yeah so yeah so Here's one for you. I mean, I don't know if you're a golfer or not, Chuck, but, uh, you know, the, the United States Open Championship this summer was played at the Los Angeles Country Club. I've, I've played which I've, is, I've played Los Angeles Country Club and I, I sliced the ball into Lionel Richie's backyard. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, um, you know, I, I, was a, I was a college golfer and, of course, uh, my, uh, I got a chance to play in my, my uncle's famous tournament at Pebble Beach. My uncle was um, the legendary American entertainer, Bing Crosby. So uh, I got to play a lot of golf with him and I got to play. Anyway, back to LACC. So for uh, very elite uh, business-oriented membership, they never, they've never allowed any uh, entertainers to become members there. So no actors, no none of that. 36 holes, great track, as you know. But what most people don't know is that for many, many, many years, uh, the members at LACC paid no dues. They didn't have to because of the oil production on the property. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, and the Los Angeles Basin is after the Permian Basin, I believe, I, I need to go back and check this, but I think it's the number two most prolific basin in U.S. history. Massive, massive oil production. Of course, the La Brea tar pits are nothing but an oil seat coming to the surface. You know, we actually, when I was at Kane Anderson, we owned a part of the La Brea field. And the wildest mm -hmm. thing about that is we buy the field 
And there were two wild stats about this. One, the production uh, curve was so flat that actually, depending on the assumptions you made, uh, your PV10 went up every year because the discounting was greater than the uh, the effect of the decline in production, <laughs> which made no sense to me and just baffled us for a while. The second thing is we bought this field and the first thing we wanted to do was send a vacuum truck out to sweep up all the oil, pick up all the oil on the ground, you know, just being a good environmental steward. That's what you would do in yeah. Texas. Lawyers had a fit. Don't you dare. Don't you touch oh. the oil on the ground. And I go, what are you talking about? And they said, the second you vacuum up that oil, you're admitting that you did it and it's not natural. And then you become liable for it. So we literally had just oil seeping up in the ground, in and amongst our wells, but we couldn't touch yeah, it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's just an incredible basin. I, I don't know if you ever saw pictures of the Wilmington field down in Long Beach in the early days. But, you know, talk about putting too many straws in the drink. I mean, they literally had oil derricks lined up like, you know, nine pins up and down the all just onshore and just offshore. The, the Wilmington field produced 4 billion barrels of oil, for God, crying out loud. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? That's just one field in the L.A. basin. So, the you know, the big well that kicked off Texas was Spindletop in East Texas. And yeah. arguably the reason we won World War II was the East Texas oil field providing all the oil. Uh, Spindletop, that region never actually hit payout, despite being one of the most prolific areas of all time. They wound up drilling so many straws into that formation that it never actually hit payout over the, uh, the now course. That I did not know. I mean, I know Spindletop blew out at 100,000 barrels a day when they hit it in 19, whatever, 12, or, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, this is where, like, there's another field uh, there's another uh, Devonian reef field not far from us called the Holman field. We've got a look-alike field that we're going to be drilling right away. But the Holman field, I think, is done. I don't want to get the number. I won't be far wrong. It's done about one and a half million barrels from a from an 1,800-foot Devonian reef. And it's owned by the people that own the uh, Indianapolis racetrack. Okay. have the 500. But that field's been producing for, you know, 20 years and the way these these reefs play out in Indiana is you get a you get a nice flush production on the well and it declines over the first 3 years from let's say 100 barrels a day down to you know 15 barrels a day and by year 10 it's down to 5 barrels a day and then that stays there for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's oh. wild. that's wild. Well, Howard I always like to end every uh, every podcast with five questions, and I, okay. I actually came. I'm I'm kind of throwing a curveball at you because we didn't prep for this, but I've got five questions. Bing Crosby edition. Are you ready for five questions on your uh, uncle? I can I can handle any of those. I I knew the man quite well. Um, I'll show you how well I knew him. I can do it here on my phone. If you can see, there we are together at the San Francisco Golf Club. Nice. It, so, actually, if you'll text, uh, if you'll text me that picture, I'll get him to uh, to uh, throw yeah, it into I can the do podcast. That. I can if, do that if you'd like. So yeah, he was he was uh, he was my dad's younger brother. They were numbers three and four of seven. Big Irish family, and 
the early part of the century in Spokane, Washington. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, they were Irish twins born in the same 12-month period. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we, we had children 18 months apart, and our joke used to be we were beginning the discussions on the third child, and the decision got made. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, question number one. Okay. Your uncle, clearly the voice of the holidays. Where do you rank singing-wise? Are you a backup singer on a Arbor Day, maybe? No, I've actually had a semi-professional singing career. I've, I've made five or six albums, uh, CDs. Happy to send you one. Uh, and, uh, you know, not everybody in the family. My brother, he can't carry a tune in a bucket. I mean, it's it's painful to watch, <laughs> but, you know, I was I was just back. I mentioned I was just over in in uh, in Ireland this last week, and I have some very good friends up in a little village in Northern Ireland. And my friend went to school with the actor Liam Neeson. Oh, nice! Um, and uh, a few years ago, I was in his village, and I did a little show at the golf club there. And Liam's mother, Kitty, was in the audience as well as his sister, who I've met a couple of times. Anyway, she's passed away now. She was in her 90s, but she came up to me afterwards. She said, you know, I liked your uncle a lot, but I think your voice is a lot better. Nice. And I said, well, Kitty, let's get your hearing aid checked, sweetie. <laughs> hey, I'd, I'd take that. I like, I like that. All right. Question number two. Your uncle actually well known for his uh, passion for golf. Big, uh, big golf player. Got any uh, any secret family golf stories you want to share? Sure, lots of I could tell. We could go on for a long time on that. Um, you know, he was actually an excellent player. He he learned to play as a caddy at Downriver Golf Course in Spokane. He played. He qualified and played in the U.S. Amateur in 1940. He played in the British Amateur in 1950 as a contestant. He won five club championships at Lakeside in L.A. and he won another one out here in the in the desert at Thunderbird, and he won, I think, a couple up at Hayden Lake in Idaho. So he had a competitive career. And then, of course, he's in the World Golf Hall of Fame as uh, the founder of the of the whole PGA Tour for Charity movement. He started that in 1937 with the Bing Crosby National Pro-Am, and it grew from there to where now virtually every PGA Tour event benefits charity. Nice. But Bing started all of that. Uh, nice. That's that's something I did not know. I, I had done some research, but uh, I hadn't run across that. That's cool to hear. So kind of on the similar lines, question three, obviously had a long storied career. Um, is there something that may be lesser known or something you'd want the public to know about your uncle that maybe they don't? Um. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things. I think one of the things that I, I would say is that um, most people don't understand what a pioneer he was in helping to advance the career of African-American entertainers. In uh, 1932, Bing recorded a record uh, called Dinah with the Mills Brothers. Um, and this is the first time that a major recording star, performed with a black music group and gave them full attribution on the record. Um, so it was Bing Crosby and the Mills Brothers. And that was 1932. Um, and um, 
You know, so it's a fascinating record, too, because Bing scats on the record, which I can't do. And one of the Mills brothers, uh, when you listen to the song, and you can listen to it on YouTube, just Dinah, Bing Crosby, it'll come up with the Mills brothers. And uh, one of the Mills brothers makes his voice sound like a bass. You think you're hearing a bass being played, but there's no bass. It's one of the Mills brothers doing the the bass with his voice. And uh, and then in 1936, uh, Bing co-starred with his very good friend Louis Armstrong in uh, a film called Pennies from Heaven. Uh, and he insisted that they get equal star billing in the. And then in the post production, the executives. From the studio came and said they they were going to have to they wanted to delete some of the Armstrong scenes from the movie because they felt that his presence as a star might hurt ticket sales in the South. And Bing said, "Well, fine, then cut an equal number of my scenes." So that that was another you know sort of major step. But um, loved hearing that they were yeah they were a mutual admiration society. Uh, late in his life, somebody asked Louis Armstrong, who's the greatest jazz singer of all time? And he said, well, Bing Crosby, of course. His voice is like gold coming from a cup because he really started out as a jazz singer in the 30s. And then um, and Bing was asked about Louis Armstrong one, after he died. His famous quote was, uh, Louis Armstrong was the beginning and the end of popular music. The best there ever was, the best there ever will be. Yeah. So they they were they were very close professional colleagues. You know, I love hearing those the stories like that because to Hollywood's credit, they did a lot of that. Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. tick on down the list mm -hmm. of the great things. Yeah. And um, no, I uh, I really love hearing that. And this was probably well. The other thing that's interesting about about Bing is that he never had an entourage. None. I mean, he drove his own car, uh, answered his own mail to the extent that he could. And, uh, you know, nobody, he didn't have any hangers on following him around. There was no rat pack, <laughs> for instance. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because one day I'd love to be famous and have a big old entourage. So uh, interesting, <laughs> interesting to hear. So this question I actually know how you're going to answer it, but I'll go ahead and, and ask it anyway. You know, do you view your uncle as a responsibility you have, a privilege you have, or is it just an interesting icebreaker at parties? Oh, I think it's a privilege, yeah. uh, especially when you consider the magnitude of, of, of the, the totality of his body of work. I mean... Um, he recorded over 2,000 songs commercially, which is more than double anyone else. He had 41 number one hits, which is more than double anyone else. He had uh, 368 songs charted between 1931 and 1957, uh, which is more than double anyone else, actually more than triple. Um, he starred in 63 feature films, and he was one of three movie stars in history to sell a billion tickets at the box office. The only other two were Clark Gable and John Wayne, neither of whom had any number one hits to my knowledge. So uh, Very. the scope of the level of, and of course, he was a top rated radio show in the country for 15 years. Uh, 
you know, he had television specials every year, Christmas specials. Uh, it just went on and on and on. That's uh, that's really cool to hear. So question five, obviously your uncle is best known for the iconic holiday song, White Christmas. Is that mandatory listening these uh, these days in the Crosby house? Or do you all secretly rock out to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's interesting about, there's a lot of interesting things about White Christmas. First of all, you know, it, it was part of the movie Holiday Inn in 1941, 42, and the whole score was written by Irving Berlin. And uh, when the, everybody thought the big hit out of the movie was going to be a song called Be Careful, It's My Heart, which was the Valentine's Day song. And the theme of the movie was going around holidays around the year. And so Irving was playing through the score for the cast. And he got to White Christmas and played through it. And apparently Bing just said, uh, you could, Irving was always very nervous about how his songs would be accepted. And apparently Bing said, you can relax, Irving. This song will do quite well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, obviously, um, the th one of the things I find the most interesting about it is this is 2023. And almost everybody you can think of has recorded a version of White Christmas from Elvis and Frank Sinatra to Mariah Carey to Ella Fitzgerald. You, I mean, you almost can't name an artist that hasn't recorded White Christmas. That would include me with an Irish group that I did a record with. Um, but the fact of the matter is nobody wants to hear anybody else's version. Right. I mean, nobody wants to hear Sinatra sing White Christmas. Nobody wants to hear Elvis sing White Christmas. They want to hear Bing. And in the... Uh, in the 70s, when he was doing a lot of work with a, pr a producer out of England called uh, Ken Barnes, Ken suggested that they that they do re-recording of a lot of his early hits from the 30s and early 40s when the recording technology wasn't as good. So Bing had him put together a list of songs for re-recording, you know, everything from June and January to Blue Skies to oh, all kinds of the early stuff. Uh, and and White Christmas was on the list, and Bing's going down the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he crosses out White Christmas, and and Ken said, "Well, how, why that?" He said, "Well, I think I think we got that one right the first time. We don't need to do it again." Yeah, that's great. Of course, he did it again every year on his Christmas show. Right? <laughs> right. Not not a commercial recording. Right. Ah, that's so cool. No, I love that. I you know yeah, we got that one right. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No no need to go further with that one. So well, it's still the biggest selling record of all time by a mile. Yeah. Ben Crosby's White Christmas. There was a brief period in 1998 when Elton John's Candle in the Wind passed it up. But Christmas comes every year and Princess Di only dies once. once. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, well, Howard, you were cool to come on. This was fun. Well, fun for me too, Chuck. I, I hope I didn't uh, drown your audience with uh, geology, but you know, uh, anybody that would have an interest in looking at our company, lgxenergycorp.com, have a look, come to one of our webinars and you can hear more. That sounds uh, that sounds awesome. Definitely need to get you back uh, when you got some results. Wish you the best of luck because uh, uh, at the end of the day, nothing nothing's better in the oil business than hitting a great well. No, there isn't anything. It's it's more fun than anything. And of course, we could have a long conversation about why oil is going to be here for a long time and why the dreams of electric cars are 
are not going to materialize the way people think they might. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. We'll uh, we'll definitely get that scheduled. To That's do the subject of another discussion, however. So, well, Chuck, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you.